Blog Talk Radio. You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That Ain't that what we're supposed to do? It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. Hey, what's up, Maria? How you doing, Queen? I'm good. How are you? Uh, real good, real good. I think I you know, I reached out to you a little earlier today, and I mentioned that I was uh, had already participated online for your uh, for the for the Free Mario Now um, campaign that you're pushing for your father. And so I know I yes, done the, thank um, you. No, absolutely, absolutely, and I understand um, there are several ways. I want to. I think I saw something today where you were pushing the uh, pushing the latter part. I want to make sure I participate in that because we could participate. It looks like we could participate in several ways. I'm, I'm, I think if I understand it correctly, right? Yes, that's correct. So there are three ways. We have an online petition on change.org, and we also have templates for support letters, and these support letters would go to the Office of the Pardon Attorney. It's just a really good way to show that the community actually supports my father's release. And then last but not least, we actually have a voicemail box set up so that people can literally allow their voices to be heard in support of my father's release. Nah, that's major. Well, just so you know, I'm in full support. I plan to do all three. Um, you know, I've been knowing you for a number of years now, and I've, you know, let it be known that, um, you know, that I follow because you've been sharing, in a sense, your father's story over the years. And, um, you know, I've always let it be known to you that this conversation is near and dear to me uh, because, as I've told you in the past, in my opinion, mass incarceration and all the things behind it with unfair citizen, sentencing and that it's super – um, it's superly it's affected our community in the worst of ways, and I am of the belief that of all the different issues that come up, for example, in a political year, uh, I've always wished this would come to the forefront. We've had moments, if you will, um, you know, uh, getting the attention of was it Eric Holder years back under Obama, um, the first step mm-hmm. back, even this time under. Um, the president, and so sometimes things do come to the forefront, but for those of us who see it as, like myself, who see it as a major, major issue, ultimately, politically, this issue doesn't come to the front. So, you know, a chance to support you with your father is an opportunity, in a sense, to do a small part. Uh, but, you know, when you and I were talking earlier, you know, just kind of mentioned this earlier today, I was telling you I think it should be, in a sense, the number one issue when it comes to the black agenda specifically in politics, you know, there's always this back and forth about whether we even have an agenda and holding, you know, these politicians accountable. And, you know, you and I both over the years have agreed we haven't ever done a great job of that. Um, But I think you were telling me that you don't necessarily see it as number one, but you definitely agree that it should be pushed to the forefront more than it ever is. Because in my opinion, even when there's a black agenda discussed, this issue was left out, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Obviously, I have a bias because my entire family on my paternal side was incarcerated at one point in time. My grandmother, my uncle, uh, my aunt, my father, obviously, is still serving his life sentence, and he's been in for 31-plus years. So, you know, I do have a bit of a bias, um, but 
I do think that this issue of mass incarceration should be at least a top five. I'm of the belief that if we had more resources, resources meaning obviously money um, to support companies that are hiring black people and to support black entrepreneurship and money to help with our education. I mean, our education shouldn't be, the quality of an education should not be regulated by your zip code. Um, I think that that would actually circumvent the need to um, get rid of mass incarceration or abolish it because we would have, you know, resources that would keep us away from a life of crime. That being said, we know that mass incarceration is, in fact, part of systemic oppression. There's a school-to-prison pipeline that drives kids into uh, prison. So I do agree with you, Montoya. It definitely should be, uh, like I said, in the top five, possibly even top three issues that are brought to the table as it relates to um, the black agenda and, and issues that we need to tackle at a national level. But as you and me were discussing earlier, uh, I think that, unfortunately, media propaganda has done an excellent job of basically casting inmates as throwaways. Uh, these are people that don't deserve any sort of attention, and so therefore they're never discussed because they're just not that important, when in fact they are extremely important. These people are fathers, they're husbands, they're you know, brothers, mentors, whatever, um, and you're literally taking them away from our community. So, you know, I agree with you to an extent. And see, the last thing you just said is, for me, why why it's number one. And, you know, we don't have to necessarily agree on it, but I just wanted to throw this out at you and see what you think of it. But but there's two things you said. When you first started, you said, hey, this concept of mass incarceration is systemic. And so most people don't know this, but the systemic aspect of it technically starts. We always think of, for example, we hear the drug, you know, the war on drugs. And so mm-hmm. typically when people hear that term, they think eight. Hey, but the reality is Nixon in 68, you know, this fool recorded everything he ever said, right? And so right. Nixon pretty much, at even at that time, said, hey, we, there's, we need to be able to affect, who, at the time, who he thought his enemies were. He, he looked at the, to, believe it or not, most people don't know this, but he saw uh, the black community and hippies as an enemy to the things that he was, you know, while he's mm-hmm. also known for, you know, the concept of being, you know, self-efficient in the black community. Sometimes people kind of relate that to the Nixon campaign, but it was just mis- it was it was just used as a political narrative. It wasn't something that they were fully behind. And one of his closest associates said, Nixon said, "Hey, we got to do something about these mm-hmm. these groups, but but they but we don't want them to know that we're doing it." And that's kind of when they developed the concept of the drug war. And so they started criminalizing marijuana at that time in a way that it hadn't been criminalized. It obviously was illegal to a certain extent, but they started putting these long extended sentences on marijuana. And, you know, if you were in the city in the 60s, you know, you could pretty much get away with walking around with that. But here mm-hmm. it is, something that was just you know, you could easily just, that wasn't illegal. Or, I mean, technically it was illegal, but if, it's, if, so, if the law is not enforced, it's not illegal, right? And so mm-hmm. anyway, just to start that context, so the reality is the drug war, which was intended, we were one of the intended targets as a community, started in 68. And so by the time you get to the 80s, when everybody's saying, hey, that's when it started, or the crack epidemic, well, 
you there is a large increase in incarceration in the 70s due to the drug war because now things that wasn't getting locked up a decade earlier for. And so mm-hmm. that's when you start seeing the increase in the prison system as far as the number of prisoners, while in fact, and Michelle Alexander gives us this information, right, when in fact crime was going down in the U.S. in the 70s, but the prison population was increasing because now you were adding these mm-hmm. possession crimes. And so anyway, I go all, all the way back to that point when you think about when it technically started. This was the, in my opinion, the start of actually taking the men out of neighborhoods. Because, again, oh, yeah. they didn't go to jail for this just a decade earlier. But when you start something, you're not going to see the effects immediately. It, ha- it has to be done over a course of time, right, where, you know, let's say in the early, you know, if you start this in 68 in the early 70s, so they lock up a few more young boys or black men that they, that they wouldn't have locked up, you know, just a couple of years earlier. So it's just a few more. Mm-hmm. But when you start putting these extended sentences, you now start the, the start of the rotation in and out of prison. And I look at the context of those numbers and say, well, this is the beginning of the men. Time we get to the 80s and the late 90s and the crack epidemic hits as well, now you got crazy numbers that one in three black men have been in the prison system or at any given time we're sitting at about 15% of our men locked up. But if you include yeah. probation, that's a third. No culture around the world can survive their men, a, 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 a third of their men or one-fifth of their men, if you will, rotating in this out of a prison system. There's nowhere in the world that you would expect a culture to thrive if the men of that culture are being taken in and out of prison. And again, I'm only talking about, you know, one-fifth to one-third. So the majority of men are not being touched, but now you're talking about what you said, fathers, providers. And so when you start seeing that happen, you're now going to get an element of society that is the, all they know is the system. But here's the thing: although I've never been to prison, my family has been hurt by the men in my in my family that have been to prison. So it ends up hurting mm-hmm. your entire family, even though the majority of your men don't go to prison. So I, again, I, I'm saying all that to say the reason I think is number one is because the things you just mentioned all are going to go downhill if the men are rotated out of your community. Mhm. I mean, you know, it, you're right. It definitely skews the dating pool for, you know, black women in particular. I mean, you know, like you said, of course, it's not most men, but obviously that is a substantial amount of our community. We're already a small, we make up a very small percentage of America's population as is. So to also still have anywhere from a fifth to a third of our men being in and out of the penal system certainly does not help with dating options for black women. Um, and so it, it, has, it has a devastating impact on black families. And like I mentioned in our situation with my father, um, I mean, basically our entire family went to prison. So 
um, you know, not literally the entire family, but yes, a, a lot of my relatives on that side of the family did in fact um, go to prison. So it's just, it's a really devastating thing. And also, as you've mentioned, we now have, you know, proof, if you will, that someone within the Nixon administration has come forth and said, yes, this is absolutely, you know, the government had its hands in this uh, drug war, basically. This was a war on black people. I mean, we, we have that now. There's been speculation for years, and we finally have that confirmation. And I'm just baffled that even with that information on hand, people are still reluctant or even ashamed to bring up the conversation it's about disgusting. getting black men out of the system. Yeah, it's, it's very disgusting. It's crazy. Like, we got the Nixon quote, and, 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 I, and I share it with people, and see, now we're – 30 years removed, 40 years removed from the quote, right? And so when people see the quote, they're kind of like, well, I'm not surprised, but typically outside of Michelle Alexander's amazing book, right? Outside of the Mm -hmm. work that she's done to a certain extent, the public nor have politicians to a degree, nobody's ever tried to connect the dots because even let's, let's take it to right today's context, right? With Biden and, being, for example, partly the author of the 94 crime bill. So we go back to that period. We remember that period. And I get it. It's, it's sooner. It's evident. We see the bad results. But if you never connect it back to 68, you missed the boat on how long this has mm-hmm. been an issue. And, and let me put it in even more context. So because a lot of times people like to say, well, just don't go to prison or you shouldn't have went to prison. Like, I get that that's simple. But here's the reality, and I'm, and I'm going to connect it all the way to, to something I live and die by. I'm a hip-hop head to the fullest. But always, people always talk about how the hip-hop music changed, right, from the early mm-hmm. 80s to what it got to in the 90s or whatever. But here's an aspect of when you start locking up, because now they were locking up younger men, right, when it comes to the – you know, now it was you – know, you, you know, typically – most crimes in the country prior to this time would be mostly adults and, you know, some juveniles would get in trouble, right? It wasn't until you got right. to the 80s that you start seeing youth pride as adults because now the crimes were getting harsher, the younger people were involved. Unfortunately, that's what the drugs brought to the game, right? Again, right. so keeping all that in reality, here's another aspect. So when you start giving younger men access, un, you know, unfortunate access to the penal system, well, now you also start getting people that, again, that were in prison for a little longer, where they're getting released to the streets. And so now younger men are learning a criminal culture that whereas in the past with shorter sentencing, um, you wouldn't even be in prison for these type of crimes previously, right? But for the most part, you, by getting locked up longer, you're starting to learn. What do you learn if you stay in prison long? You learn how to be a better criminal. Yep. So you now start replacing something that if you wasn't taking so many men out of the neighborhoods, there's values, there's cultural things that a whole community starts to lose because now, even though, again, the majority of men are not in prison or going to prison, there's starting to be more younger boys that you now have to pick up for, the village has to pick up for. Well, when you start that rotation with the, drug war in 68 and it becomes exponential by a decade later and then by the mid 80s we see this period that's very evident a lot of people don't know about this but i think it's either 85 or 88 was the first time 
that possession of drugs became the number one reason that people were in prison, more so than murder, rape, arson, assault combined. That that number passed. And that and then again, this is also if you can look up in the, you know, Michelle Alexander's book. But just seeing that transition was proof of what was happening and we both and all know, as we just said, it was a target on us. I'm not even talking about the aspect of you know, whether the government peddle crack or not in our communities, um, there's, you know, if you do the full research on that, that, that might not even be factual. I'm talking about strictly the concept of we're going to criminalize this particular thing because one group is doing it more and they're going to receive the heap of the sentencing. So I've basically drawn out how it affects a culture. Again, when I say no culture around the world could survive, the men being taken out. It could be from war. It don't even have to be prison. Whatever takes out the majority of a big portion of men out of a community, that community is going to suffer in how it goes forward, survives, and sees family going forward. So I consider it mm-hmm. the number one destruction of our black families when I know that right now, currently, 500,000 black men currently sit in the penal system and the majority of them are there. Not because they were drug traffickers. I'm talking about big-time kingpins or anything of that nature, but simply through possession. And then when you start seeing the other levels, then you see extended sentences for something that, that, that somebody who wasn't a violent offender. From what I understand, that's exactly your father's scenario who's sentenced to life for a nonviolent offense. You never saw that in the 60s. You never saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I do want to respond to something because um, since my siblings and I have launched this campaign to promote the release, the immediate release of our father, I don't know if I said his name yet or not, but Mario Lloyd, um, I actually did get someone reach out saying, hey, you know, I would like to support, but, you know, he committed a crime. I just feel like he has to do the time. Um, And so to that, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I have been blogging and kind of been in the public space for almost 10 years now. So I don't really take things personally, but what I like to do is provide another perspective. Um, The number one thing is in 2015, the U S Sentencing commission released a report that said that black men are sentenced 20% times Uh, I'm sorry, 20% longer, given 20% longer sentences than white men for the same crime. Um, So there's an obvious and glaring discrepancy in the sentencing, number one. Number two, if my father were a white male and committed the same crime, with that being said, there's a very high likelihood and probability that he would not have been sentenced to life. Um, And if he would have been sentenced to life, he would have already been out by now. There are white counterparts who were, you know, drug king pans in Chicago around the same time, and they've been out of prison for 15, 16 years now. Um, So another thing to consider is... And let me me put that little part in context real quick. Sorry to interrupt you. Mm -hmm. I want to make this very clear what you just said, um, because I know you and I have talked about this in the past. And you're not just saying that. 
these are drug kingpins considered that your father knew because y'all they were in the same industry. So this is not you just saying this, pulling this out of yes. out of the sky. These were other right. people that were in the same industry, if you want to call it that, as your father who, like you said, get the same situation, but they've been out 15 years. So this ain't just something you're pulling out from something you study. This is firsthand knowledge. I just wanted to point that out as a piece of clarity. Yes, exactly. Yes, you are absolutely right. Um, another thing is to, to think about just to kind of show the, the you know, the, the difference in how black people, black men in particular, are criminalized versus everyone else. You have the Sackler family who is worth billions of dollars for creating, you know, OxyContin. They knew that it was a highly addictive opioid, and they have destroyed millions of people's lives throughout the United States in particular. And they have yet to serve any time. Um, There have been lawsuits brought against them. I don't think they've spared a dime. Uh, And so it's just amazing and baffling how, you know, by comparison, although my father is, you know, considered, he was convicted as a drug kingpin. And when you, can, when you compare what my father did in comparison to what the Sackler family did, it's laughable. There is no comparison. I mean, he would, he would be considered a street peddler in comparison. These people are making billions, billions upon billions of dollars, and not at any moment have they been uh, charged of any crime, knowing that their product was highly addictive. So, you know, there are. And let's go, let's take it one step further. Let's take it uh one step further, too, Maria, if we can. Uh, And that's for anybody out here, again, who might want to put in context where what they do is legal versus what he, you know, what he and other black, uh, other men, because, again, it ain't just black men. We're not the majority of even the drug kingpins, if you want to be honest. But here's the other part of it. And when you say the damage that they've done, not only will we say highly addictive, but if you actually, if people were just to go Google, I'm not going to, you know, just recommend that they do it. If you just Google the deaths due to those same prescription drugs that are quote, quote unquote, considered legal, it's not even close. It's not even close. There are way more people being killed by prescription drugs. Not even, I'm talking about any prescription drug, but Oxycontin, particularly the, the results of families being destroyed uh, again, this highly addictive, whether it's overused, misused, misdiagnosed, and the people that die from it, it doesn't come close, but it's just simply how the government over the t- period over the past has simply said, oh, we want to criminalize this group. This group would not be criminalized. And then as simple as that, and the best way to point that out is the fact that right now there are states in which People are making millions and billions of dollars off of marijuana while we still have people sitting in prison for marijuana drug trafficking right now simply because the laws and they are now. Continue what you're saying, but I just wanted to add that context. Most people don't realize how many more deaths come from Oxycontin mm-hmm. and things of that nature in comparison to the so-called quote-unquote illegal drugs. It's not even about being an advocate for drugs. It's just the reality of what our prison system has unfairly and unjustly done and why, in my opinion, this is a major issue because we don't have black families who have not been touched by mass incarceration and drugs alike. Go ahead, Queen. I'm sorry about that. No, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, if my father were a white male, he would have probably been hired by a large pharmaceutical company by now. 
Um, and again, just, you know, one, one of his white counterparts that comes to mind who was a kingpin in Chicago around the same time and has been out of prison for 15, 16 years, he's a, now he's a, a public speaker. He travels around the nation speaking. Of course, he's not doing it during COVID-19, but he was traveling around the nation speaking and opened up a chain of hot dog restaurants in Chicago. So it's a joke. You know, it, it's a joke. He did the exact same thing. In fact, his case actually had violence in it. My father's case has zero violence. There was no violence, none violence. Um, and that is very literal. My father is a first time nonviolent offender. So he's, you know, he's been in prison now for 31 years and counting. Um, he has stage three kidney disease. He's diabetic and COVID has actually been detected in his unit. He doesn't have it thankfully, but um, it has been detected. My father is 60 years old. He poses no threat whatsoever to society. And it's just time to bring him home. It's just time. And if no other reason than that alone, what you just laid out is why I'm a full supporter of Free Mario Now, um, hashtag Free Mario Now. And, and obviously, um, again, this is a major issue to our community for a lot of reasons, but in particular, as you said, this is plenty of time spent, you know, even like you said, let's, you know, we can accept the responsibility of it was a crime at the time, but 31 years is well overdue, well past the time uh, of, 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 of being a unfair sentence, because that's clearly what it is at this point. And as you said, what well, it was a nonviolent from the very beginning. And so we're not keeping a violent criminal away. He just came along at the wrong time based on political, uh, false BS political narratives that were getting people elected. Mm-hmm. If I could just be hard on crime, it would get me elected, and regardless of the lives that it changed and the men who were taken from their families, who in many of cases, based on the circumstances, some people may call this as an excuse, but this is a reality, and is in a lot of major cities such as Chicago, Chicago being notorious. We, we, we look at Chicago and it's definitely the, the, the ground zero, right. For, for this quote unquote, black on black BS that people use with this political narrative. Mm-hmm. Let's put that in full context. The thing that nobody ever really applies to the cities like Chicago, not being the only one, but one of them and nobody, the Milwaukee world, um, even as we see, unemployment rates and things like that supposedly was driving down prior, you know, pre-COVID, if you will. The reality is people never put in perspective the unemployment rates in the cities where you see the most quote-unquote crimes, whatever those crimes Mm -hmm. might be. They've always been directly related. And so while many of us may have chose to move to or live in places with, quote, unquote, less crimes, what also related was there were employment opportunities. And the reality is just to give people numbers, because I love to give people numbers, for for example, around the country, for the most part, when things are, when the, when the economy is good, the unemployment rate, even for youth, usually sits around 17% around the country, but it hardly ever does it fall below 40% or it goes as high as 50 and 60% in the Chicago's of the world, in the Milwaukee's of the world. All these cities that are notoriously known for so so much crime is where the least opportunity lies. So I bring all that home to say that in some of these cases, it was, it was the only 
game in town, and many of your people in, entered it to ensure there was food on the table. Again, not to knock those who would never choose to do it, but can I say I understand? Have I seen people in my family make that choice? I was fortunate enough to never have to make that choice, and, and I'm thankful mm-hmm. for my family in that sense. But I do understand some get into it by choice. Some of it is their only choice. But either way, just 40 years ago, you couldn't even went to prison for some of these things. That's just a fact. Right. And now that we're finally getting it right, you know, as much as I mean, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I think we were pushing at the same time when we were, when we were trying to get their attention. I think, I think I saw you actively pushing for this at the same time that I was pushing the Middle Dollar Community Club. But when we were excited to get Eric Holder's attention uh, when he was the, you know, uh, the Attorney General about mm-hmm. this very issue, and we were so let down while they promoted it because, you know, Obama did break the record for the most let out, if you will. We were let down because based on the criteria, it should have been, I think they released about 20, 22 to 3,000. It should have been 30,000 based on the criteria should they sent out for who they would consider. Again, there would be nonviolent people who had already served a certain amount of time. Basically, they had served time for their crime, and they and <clears throat> while they got to what it was, I think they were called, what it was, I think it was the, was the Rockefeller laws that, that said crack, uh-huh. you know, changed it, that crack's 15 times more than five, whatever. So they finally got that change, and even the holder to their credit, they even said to Congress, make these laws retroactive, and Congress did not make them retroactive. So they just got locked up 10 years too early. Yeah, pretty much. So how can we even dare say that that's fair? Right. It's not. It's not. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the previous administration, uh, the Obama administration. Like you said, I know a lot of people were singing his praises, but as you mentioned, there were so many in that qualify for that release and the the program by and large of course again the public doesn't necessarily care because these are inmates so they're like oh well they shouldn't have committed the crime anyway but as you mentioned there were so many other uh, inmates that were eligible for release and my father was particularly angry with that administration because as an inmate he told me that the program was ran like a lottery it was literally just a luck of the draw um, if you were just fortunate enough to get the right attorney assigned to you and to have your paperwork somehow pushed up the chain of command, you were let out. Uh, He knew a couple of guys who got out. But, I mean, other than that, there was absolutely no structure. There was no formality necessarily. It was very helter-skelter. And he was extremely disappointed with that administration. He just knew when Obama was elected that he would be coming home. And he didn't. Um, His petition for commutation of sentence was denied uh, in 2016, and yeah, I mean, he, he, it didn't work. Um, the program just, it was not, it just didn't work the way that it should have. It was a great idea in theory, um, but we know how government is. It's bulky. I'm not necessarily blaming Obama per se, um, but we know that government is bulky and slow to move, and so unfortunately, that is a glaring example of government disappointing as usual not having structure and order so that all eligible inmates were able to uh, properly and efficiently submit their request for release and have it granted. So 
I guess, as my mother would say, that's too much like right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was devastated because, again, this is an issue that is near and dear. Um, and, I, and I personally make it near and dear because, and I don't even know if I did a good job of describing what I consider the exponential of, effects of just cultures losing the men out of their, you know, out of their communities. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I just keep stressing losing. And, and when I say men, you're losing them at a, at a young age. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're losing them at 16, at 17, and not losing them because I don't want, to, I don't want nobody to think I'm exaggerating. I'm not saying that 16-year-olds are getting locked up for 20 years. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying right. is, um, like, you know, just to even give and, – and, again, we keep seeing the laws change because they know they yes. got it so wrong. So, so yes. for example, like, like we're just now decriminalizing – for example, um, you know, marijuana here in, in Atlanta, if you will. But it wasn't long, you know, once the crack era became the issue, even New York criminalized, you know, marijuana possession. But if you were, again, 10 years earlier, you get something on your record at 16. And on that 16, yep. something on the record means, oh, but at 17, you, you're, not, you're not probably not going to get hired like your peers because you got something on your record at 16. And so I'm talking about the cycle of having youth enter into the system, which then, especially back then, there was so hard to get hired once you had to mark, mark that damn box, which, you know, years later, we have the ban the box campaign. This is, too, this is 20 years too late. I, and I'm and, yeah. I, and I'm a fan, and I've and I've featured people that that started Band the Box here in Georgia. So that's not I, I love them for their efforts. But the reality is, when we find out this was started in 1968, we're 20 years too late. So because for yeah. 20 years you you got people running through a cycle, and so you didn't. I didn't. Again, I want to make it real clear. You didn't take the young boy out at 17. It's what you put on his record that made it difficult for him to finally not get his life together until he's 29. Who has he had children at that point? Whose life has, you know, his life is a struggle. Who life has he ruined versus getting raised in a culture where before the drug war starts, there wasn't a lot of people in prison. That's just, I'm talking about putting it in full context. We didn't have quote unquote, mass incarceration, but now we have 2.2 million people locked up, more than China and a bunch of communist countries combined. We made an industry out of it, and it was targeted and focused on our lives. You know, I'm not saying things that people haven't heard before, but I'm hoping to give right. a little more context of how what I mean when I say young men were taken out of the community is whether you're in or out, it's whether you're on probation, and let's not even get into how easy it is to go easy it is to go back to, you know, jail on probation. The meat meal situation was perfect, right? Popping the willy gets this mm-hmm. man. If he didn't, if he didn't have the money that he had, he would still be in jail for popping the willy because he had been on probation for a decade, for a yeah. decade. Yeah. So there's all yeah. of these. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please, Queen. Jump in. No, I was just going to, I was agreeing with you. I mean, I, I, you know, the the margin of error for black men and boys, or really black people in America, does not exist. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white school district in Mississippi, and I can tell you there were a number of times that the white high school students would get drunk 
on the weekends. They would go hang out in a local at a local restaurant in the parking lot, drinking beer all night. The cops would literally come up to them and joke around, oh, what are you guys up to? Oh, you guys better be careful. Who's your designated driver? We're talking about 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Uh, but let that have been in a predominantly black community. The capital of Mississippi is Jackson, which is about 80% African-American. Let those have been black high school students hanging out at a local restaurant. Not only would they have probably been cussed and parents called and, uh, you know, exorbitant fees charged for all types of probation and all this other stuff, but somebody probably may have ended up dead because a cop would have claimed that they were, they felt threatened or something. Who knows? But my whole point here is that the margin of error, it just does not exist for black people in America. And that's another harsh reality that, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. That is a harsh reality. I'm going to do you one better. Maria, we'll get off this thing. Instead of your hypothetical, here's a real-life story in my little three-stop light town. Real-life story, mm-hmm. prime example of what you just said. No no more. You don't even need a hypothetical. So um, our our middle school where it was located or whatever, it was across town. And so sometimes so uh, when we would have our little dances, if you will, we would have to uh, um, walk through the middle of town to get to the school or whatever. And so we would have a good time coming home. And our parents was usually pretty good with, you know, letting us walk home as long as we all walk home together, if you will. And so anyway, right. one night, this particular night, we were walking home. And like you said, the white guys could be up in town on their trucks and drinking all kind of beer. So somebody's driving, right? They're on the back of their trucks drinking all kind of beer. And so I remember one particular night we were coming through town and uh, we had stopped in the Hardee's or whatever. You know, we a bunch of young kids, so we'd probably get a little too rowdy or whatever. Um, you, right. know, to, you know, to a certain extent or whatever, you know, being kids. But, you know, we're ordering food. There's a lot of us in there. And so, you know, we didn't know for a fact, but eventually the cops were, you know, called. We were pretty much leaving by the time they get there, though. So we're walking home, and they're making an effort to ensure that we go on home or whatever, and they're talking to us. And one of my partners says, well, what about them? And they're literally – 20 yards from us. What about them sitting there drinking beer? And us, huh. as little young black boys, was like telling our partner, like, just let that go, man, because we're worried about him going to jail, right? He was so frustrated, right. he could not let it go. He was like, you're worrying about us? Look at them. And wow. literally, because he wouldn't be quiet, he went to jail that night. Wow. They're literally Terrible. watching classmates get drunk 20 yards away from us. Yep. It's believable. So nobody gets killed when he goes to jail. That really Mm -hmm. happened. The example you just gave. I believe it. So that's it, Queen. I mean, if you will, for anybody that catches this, you know, just throw it out there. How can they assist? Because I would love to see your father come home. He deserves to. Time has been spent. Let's get him home. I know yes. the time of COVID has even pushed this forward. We see prisoners getting released. He definitely should be on that list. So if you could just share how people can, you know, consider supporting. I encourage anybody that hears this broadcast, free Mario Lord. If not one more time, I'll let you go, Queen. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, thank you so much for, you know, supporting my family and I as we push for our father's freedom. Uh, 
the website is freemarionow.com. Again, that's freemarionow.com. If you click on the red button at the top of the webpage that says Get Started, it takes you down to the um, three easy options that we've created for people to support our demand for our father's re immediate release from prison. Um, the first option is you'll be able to actually download, print, sign, and mail a letter of support to the Office of the Pardon Attorney. Um, by the way, she's actually a sister. She's black. I don't know much about her, but um, there is a black woman who is the acting pardon attorney right now. So we're asking for everybody to send those letters as soon as possible. My father has already submitted his petition for commutation of sentence, and so um, his application is just sitting on her desk. So those support letters would really help. The second option that we have is, of course, an online petition via change.org. If you would, please sign that petition. That's uh, greatly appreciated. Well, we'll be sending in a printout of the supporters to the Office of the Pardon Attorney as well. Last but not least, uh, we are really asking people to literally allow their voices to be heard. And you can do that by calling the number on the website. Um, it's a 773 area code. And literally just leaving a voicemail message in support of our father's freedom. Um, your name and let folks know, you know, why you support the call, our call for his immediate release. And uh, again, just thank you so much for even the consideration and the willingness to help our family. My father's been in prison for 31 years and counting. He is at stage three kidney disease. He's diabetic and COVID-19 has been detected at his unit. So he is very, very vulnerable to catching this deadly virus. And we do not want that to happen. We want him in the care of the family as soon as possible. So please, if you're listening and you want to support our call for our father's immediate release, uh, we have those three really easy options for you at freemarionow.com. Hashtag Free Mario Now. Thank you, Maria. We're going to do this again soon. Take care, Queen. Yes. Thank you, Montoya. Absolutely.